welcome to Brood in Bangkok, the podcast about the people you meet in the city that makes a hard man crumble. Hey, it's Carsten from Brood in Bangkok, and today I'm here with Jeff Amato sitting in his office. Hi, Jeff. How's it going, Carson? That's my guest for today. And before we dive into the interview with him, I want to give you a second to think about what is the least likely business you could possibly start in Bangkok. Because I feel Jeff probably picked one of those by opening a tanning studio. Now, for those who have been to Thailand before, you notice that Thais are really keen to stay out of the sun to avoid getting tanned. Anything from going out with umbrellas to using skin whitening cream, it's just such a big thing to have fair skin. And all the foreigners who come to Thailand, I think the ones that do want to get tanned definitely head out to the beach. I don't think many people would have thought about going to Thailand and then going to a tanning studio. So Jeff's business idea, when I first heard about it, I was a bit intrigued. How would that work? And who would use it? And today's interview, Jeff answers those questions. And he also talks about his journey, how he came from being a successful corporate employee back in the States to starting a tanning studio in Thailand all the little quirks and stories he experienced along the way, be it with customs or his landlord, because I can assure you there's a lot of explaining to do if you're the very first person to do this kind of business in Thailand. And he talks about how Thailand is and was different when he first came here 20 years ago. Jeff also runs a Thai bar and restaurant, which has a very unique clientele who he'll be talking about more. Let's dive right into my interview with him and find out who brought him to Thailand first. Caltex, which is based in Singapore, Caltex Oil Company, they were looking for proposals to bring 4,000 people to the 1998 Asian Games in Bangkok. And so... We came down several times for, you know, full-blown presentations. I mean, real dog and pony shows. I mean, where you'd spend, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on decor and, and really, you know, getting them excited about the Asian games and, and how we would run them and the transportation elements, the hospitality elements. They wanted to go to the Asian games. Mm -hmm. So they actually put out an RFP, a request for proposal to bring 4,000 of their customers to the Asian games. So they had made the commitment to go to the games in 1996. The games were underway in 1998. So in early 96, top companies like mine were invited to participate in the bid process. So we all flew down to Singapore and, you know, rented conference rooms in the biggest hotels and, you know, did a And I really got to say the creative department I worked with, you know, as I mentioned before, they're about as good as they get. And so I had a tremendous support and they just blew these guys away and we won the business. And you got to go to Thailand. And I got to go to Thailand a lot <laughs> between 96 and 98, because it was such a big program operation, 4,000 people over a 21 day period. We did four waves of 1,000 each. We took over the 
Riverfront Shangri-La Hotel, five-star hotel, which is still one of my favorites, even though it's an old timer. The traffic, if you can imagine, was even worse than it is now. So it was an exciting time, exciting time to be here. I know that the program itself was $6 million U.S. For the, for the entire program, which included transportation, food and beverage, entertainment, river cruises, and of course, all the tickets to the games. If you compare that image you have from Bangkok back in the 90s with the Bangkok now, 20 years later, what's like, if you compare those mental images, what's different? Well, the SkyTrain has made a remarkable difference and for the better, definitely for the better, but it's lost a little bit of its charm. It's really become a, a very international cosmopolitan city. Are there any stories, any, any experiences you had in the 90s you don't think you could have again today? I remember being at the Asian Games on the first day and there were, Thai, of course, a lot of Thai people there. And I remember this little girl, and I've got a picture of her, but she had this little little ponytail on the top of her head. She couldn't have been more than, oh, I don't know, four years old. And she, and I was standing there and she was just staring at me, you know, like, and clearly she had never seen, you know, a white man, <laughs> a foreigner, a Farang before. And it was so cute. You know, she wanted to hold my hand. She wouldn't let you, she could hold my finger. You know, that's, that's how small her hand was. But, uh, I'll just, I was really struck by that, you know, that, that here I was in the, in the middle of this really big city in the, in the middle of this enormous sporting event. And there was someone that hadn't encountered someone from the West. And, uh, so to me, that was a, I'll never forget it. And it was really cool. And I got a picture of her, you know, her and I together and, uh, it's up, you know, I don't think you'd find that anymore in Thailand or I shouldn't say Thailand, definitely not in Bangkok. Right. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah, as you say, it become a bit more cosmopolitan. Inexpensive. It's, you know, this is, that's a real misconception. I think a lot of people have about Thailand or, or Bangkok in particular. And that is that, oh, it's, it's so inexpensive, you know, well, it, it is, it is, if you want to live like a lot of Thai people live, which is very conservative, you know, in very, you know, plain surroundings, cinder block rooms, you know, no air conditioning. Yeah. You can get a great deal, but if you want to live You want to replicate, you know, lifestyle to some extent that you have in the West, very expensive. You go and have a martini at Scirocco, it's $15 US. If you, you want to have a steak, you know, at the landmark, it's $200. Do you have friends coming over to visit you? What do they think about you living in Thailand? Like, I think they think I'm having a lot of fun. And uh, I think to a great extent that is true. <laughs> so, I mean, it's kind of old now because I've been here so long. I think at the beginning, it was a little more unique and exciting for everybody, including myself. Now it's just the place I live and work. What about your dad? Does he? I miss him. Like I could, I, I couldn't even tell you how much I miss my dad. We talk on the phone at least once, if not twice a week for an hour at a time. It's usually during a Cardinals baseball game and we're both watching it. You know, I'm watching it at seven in the morning. He's watching it at seven at night in uh, St. Louis. But uh, if there's one thing I miss, it's 
definitely, you miss the chance of seeing your family and friends. And I'm sure it's the same for you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like, I, I've, I've often thought about that too. It's like, why didn't I just move to Costa Rica? You know, it would have been a four hour flight from the U.S. and I could come back for weddings, for important occasions where here it's, you know, I, I don't get home ever more than once a year. Uh, and that's, you know, for not more than two or three weeks in time. Have you thought about inviting your dad over? Oh, I can't. He's, uh, God bless him. He couldn't make the flight. Mm. He's got, you know, health problems. It's really up to me to get home and, and stay connected to him. That's quite the well, challenge to fly home, make these 30-hour trips to stay in touch. Yeah, it is. I will say this, the advent of Facebook And I know that everybody's kind of getting worn out with it all. At least I am a little bit, but it has been one of the most marvelous communication tools for me. I've got, you know, a brother, two sisters, nieces, nephews, aunts, uncles, they're all on Facebook, you know, to be able to see my friend's kids growing up, going to graduating college, graduating high school, you know, seeing their football teams, their baseball teams. I mean, this is something that, you know, 20 years ago, no one would have been able to do, you know, you were making these, you know, super expensive long distance phone calls and now there's Skype and and all these great, you know, communications links that help us stay more connected. Imagine you would have moved here that first time you came here in the nineties. What would that have been like? You know, Facebook, barely any internet. Yeah. And it was, as I said, like even kind of telephone call was you know, a production, you know, you were going through operators and, and trying to get through to the other side and it was breaking up all the time. And again, if, you know, Thailand in many respects is still considered a developing country. If you can imagine in the late nineties, it was, it wasn't nearly as developed as it is now. I went to work for a company called Pacific World, which is a, a de- what they call a destination management company. There's a lot of them in Bangkok because uh, tourism is so huge here, but Pacific World was the largest. In fact, it was a company Merits, my old company, used when we did the Asian Games. Ah. So I knew the chairman. I knew the president very well. They were friends. Jacques Arnault, he's still running uh, DMCs in uh, Shanghai and Beijing and Hong Kong. He's just the neatest guy. He's, he's half Chinese, half French, mm-hmm. and he's six foot two and... Just the neatest guy. If you ever remember the Hollywood character, Charlie Chan. <laughs> Charlie Chan. It might be before your time. Anyway, it looks just exactly like him. And, uh-huh. and uh, it's a real compliment because the guy is very handsome. But he was a great friend and we had done a lot of business together. I did trips all over China, again, with merits, but we used Pacific World on every trip. Well, it came up that while I was here, the country manager for Thailand retired. And I was, I'd actually approached a headhunter and, you know, said, you know, what are they interested in? I said, well, I wouldn't mind running a, a destination management company if one comes up. He goes, well, there's one called Pacific World. I'm like, what? <laughs> I said, that's, that's my friend. <laughs> Jack so I immediately picked up the phone, called Jack and <laughs> met him. Skip the headhunter fee. Well, no, I actually, he got hit with that too. But I met him at the airport. Uh, he came, flew in from Shanghai, met him at the airport and, you know, had a dinner and a couple of drinks and sign the deal. So I, I became initially the country manager for just Thailand, where we had, you know, four offices across Thailand. And then within two years of that, uh, I became regional managing director for Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, Burma, and Laos. 
Do you remember any favorite stories from that time? There is one that pops straight to mind and, and it's something that for the Thai office, I'm very proud of these people. Very, very proud of each and every one of them. Collectively, we were able to sell the largest, at the time, was the largest travel operation in the history of Thailand. And that was the 2000, don't quote me on the date, I, I won't get that right, but it was the International Rotary Club. They had their international convention here. There were 38,000 participants. Our piece of the program was handling the transportation. We had 1,300 motor coaches. We had 3,000 staff that we hired and trained. So without a doubt, that was a real interesting period. It was a difficult program, but it was one of the biggest sales that I've been involved with and absolutely the biggest program operation I had ever been involved with. And again, at the time, the largest in the history of the country. So that was something that, and again, these Thai people, they just don't let you down. And they worked tirelessly 24 hours a day to get it done, to make the customer happy. And we got, uh, we won a lot of awards for that. So that would be, that would be my, probably my one and only story. <laughs> okay. Did you get like late night calls with like 2 a.m. calls? This is not working. Yeah. And, and that's actually the nature of the business. And so what, what does one of those calls sound like? Uh, you know, the president of Toyota got left at the, you know, uh, got his sedan, didn't pick him up at the airport. That's bad. You know, that's really, really bad. Okay. And what do you do? Uh, well, what you do is you try to fix the problem. And so, you know, you immediately, yeah, I've got six walkie talkies around me and I was able to get another car there, you know, as quick as possible, but someone, anyone, you know, any, all your guests are VIPs, but the pressure of bringing in, you know, I guess you could call them super VIPs <laughs> is pretty intense and, and you want to always get it right. You want to get it right for everybody. And it's just, you know, our guy was on the way, but stuck in Bangkok traffic, go figure. <laughs> you know? So it took a while for us to overcome that. And, you know, we sent a lot of flowers and, and we champagne to the room and just made sure that it was, you know, they understood that we made a mistake and that we would do better from this point forward. Well, that sounds like a good way to handle it. Yeah. Yeah. I took a two year sabbatical. And traveled a lot. Actually rented a, Amy, my girlfriend and I rented uh, this beautiful pool villa in Bangsaray, which was just one kilometer from the beach. You know, we bought bikes and we both love football. And we were right in between two TPL or Thai Premier League football clubs, uh, Patia United and Navy Football Club. Mm -hmm. So on any given weekend, we had one or two matches that we could go watch live, which is something that coming from the West and particularly America, I'm just a sports fanatic and love live sports. And you just don't get that here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even a match that's got 300 people sitting in the stands you know, is a lot of fun to go see. So uh, that was a great period and a great time to, to catch up on getting back into healthy, living a little bit. We enjoyed it. I have definitely have an impression that in Thailand, the whole football thing is coming more and more. It's like really, like I was in Cha Chang Sao, city about 70 kilometers outside of Bangkok. And there was a Thai football pub that had all the signs of all the Thai clubs on the walls. And yeah. it really seems that this is like, you know, 
Thais always were very big into international football leagues, but it seems to me that local leagues are picking up steam. Boy, you, you couldn't be more correct. And it's really just a, a phenomenon that's, that's happened over the course of the last three or four years. There's always been a massive following, and there's, there are two schools, Liverpool fans, Liverpool Football Club, and those typically are your older ties. And then Man United. Manchester United is the younger generation. They're just completely mad for, for Man United. And so you're right. So the international, but almost exclusively the English Premier League is followed rapidly. So just a couple of years ago, a Thai businessman that owns King Power, the duty-free shops, bought Leicester City. And as you know, that was the last season's uh, Premier League champion, so which brought a lot of pride to the people of Thailand and uh, created a lot of, lot of fans for, which was a second tier team that just came out of nowhere and just pure glory, <laughs> you know, won the EPL, the biggest league in the world. But so the EP, the the international coverage of football and following of football by ties has always been there, but I think that's accelerated the growth of the, what I, it's the Toyota Premier League. And with the advent of teams like Buriram up in Isan, they have following all over. Um, everyone's got a Buriram jersey on. Amy, my girlfriend, is from Buriram, so we've been to the stadium several times and it's just so much fun. But Carson, you're right. It's going off the hook now. I've been to many matches in inside Bangkok now. So we've got several teams here, 100% sold out. What's it like? You know what? It used to be more fun. And, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> this is another very, very uniquely Thai experience. When we used to go to the football matches, like at National Stadium, you'd see the Thai national team, say, against uh, Qatar or some... Saudi Arabia or something like that, they would sell beer outside the stadium. So as an American, you always have a beer and a hot dog when you're watching a baseball game or American football or, you know, any sport, it's just parcel to the match. You know, you have a beer and you watch the game. So back then, this is a few years ago, you couldn't take a can of beer in, which you can't really in any stadium, but they did. What they did is they would give you a plastic bag all right, which we're famous for plastic bags here, but a plastic bag, put a few ice cubes in it and dump a <laughs> tall boy Chong into the bag and give you a straw. So, you know, you'd walk in with three of these bags and sit down with, you know, on bleachers and, you know, every, everybody had a, a bag of beer and it was an absolute blast. A lot of the stadiums now ban alcohol. The ones in Pattaya don't. <laughs> so if you want to go to the Navy or Pattaya United, you're going to have a big time. I remember the last game I saw was Tadra, Klong Thai team. Mm. I think they had beer. Um, yeah, but they do. They do? They do. And it, it's stadium by stadium. And I've been to that stadium as well. And those are rabid fans. Yes. And that, it's a very small stadium compared to the ones they're building now. But that is a, if you've been there, you've been to a real tie match. Right. Because that's big fun. Definitely. But they have a foreigner following. Like there's like, I saw like, there's like, I don't know, somewhere between 30 and a hundred foreigners that travel with them and they have the jerseys and everything. Yeah. So they have like a. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you'll see that everywhere. You'll see, mm -hmm. you'll see that everywhere. And there's a big international community here, as you well know. I, I think 
the number is somewhere around 250 to 300,000 expats uh-huh. that, that live and work here. Okay. So I guess, you know, are on permanent, like retirement visas mm-hmm. or work mm-hmm. permits. So I think that's the official number. So you, you, you get a lot of folks that just really love football and you can go to any pub on Saturday night and you can see it. Mm-hmm. It's just jam packed. Just last Saturday was the big derby between Man U and Man City standing room only at the sportsman's pubs where I was. So yeah, it was a good time. Right. And that gives you the idea to start your own bar because you started one, right? Uh, yeah, not necessarily. Our bar and restaurant is called Eason, uh-huh. uh, E-C-I-N. Everyone thinks Eason, right? Right. But Eason, which is uh, a Thai Chinese word, which means one heart. Uh-huh. And it's located on uh, Rama 4, Praman Si, in between... The world famous Big C, Rama 4, and between that and the Channel 3 building. So it's on the same side of the street. Okay, that's not exactly Tonglor. Uh, no, no, no. That's not Tonglor. That's so Klung- what kind of crowd do you get? Great question. It's Klung Toy. Uh-huh. And really, we cater to, we're surrounded by six high-rise office buildings. Mm-hmm. So the SO Tower is right next to us. The Channel 3 Tower is right there. The new uh, village, uh, Swan Plume just opened across the street from us. So we do a great bang up coffee in the morning. We get a lot of folks that are regulars for coffee in the morning. We do a great lunch every day, Monday through Friday and big dinner and happy hour. And then we do live music Wednesday, Thursday and Friday nights. And it's local bands, local trios. It's just a blast. Mm-hmm. We also have karaoke. What gave you the idea to start that? Good question, because it's my family's background is the restaurant business, but it was nothing I was ever really that keen to get involved with. But it's where I met Amy, my girlfriend, uh, who I adore and who's my partner in the business. Mm-hmm. We have a a really strong partner as well in Eason and a great guy, one of my best mates uh, named Darren White. He's the uh, CEO of uh, one of the major coffee companies in Thailand here. Mm-hmm. And he's Australian, just one of the nicest guys you'd ever meet, but he's got a real business sense about him. When he came in, he took the place to a whole nother level. I'll be honest. So he walked in and said, this and points at everything has to change. 100% everything had to change. <laughs> and uh, so- How did that make you feel? I mean, you've built this- with- I knew he was right. And so, you know, I was all for it. How long did you have the place by that time? It's about six years, seven years. And uh, we just went through a complete gut rehab on it. And the place is so groovy now. You know, we've got a Facebook page. We don't even have a website. You know, it's just, Mm. you know, do a a real bang up business. I would say it's 95% Thai, our clientele. What's the biggest challenge in that business? Like, how do you influence even sales? I mean, you have a place, you can't really move the location and, you know, you're like, You make it look nice, but how do you get people to come inside? For us, it's all word of mouth. And again, we've been around a long time. We've had the same chef for eight years, Kun Erd. He is just the best and the most loyal. Amy has worked there for years. How did you find that chef? It sounds amazing. Put a sign on the door. A sign on the door. Chef wanted. Chef wanted. And how many people walked in? Quite a few. And actually that's, I would say, you know, you ask about the challenges of the business, uh, I mean, we're fortunate. We we're kind of like the, you know, the, the local pub for a lot of the people that work around there. So they'll come and right after work, it's just an easy walk. They're already, their cars are already in the car park. They're, they just want to wait out the traffic a little bit, have a really nice meal. 
a very inexpensive meal. You know, you've got 95 baht, you know, large Leo bottles. You'll have to stop by Carson. I think you'll enjoy it. How did you even know about that neighborhood? Were you working there or how did you even get Uh, the idea for the location? I lived in Prampong. I lived in the area. And you said, this place needs a bar. No, or there was that one already. No, there was one there already. Okay. Yeah, there was one there already. And, and Amy was working there. Okay. And so I became a more frequent customer. And yeah, it just how do you check the books of a bar? It's, it's impossible. You have to know where you're at. You okay. know? And you got to pop in a lot. You know, you pop in at different times of day on different days. And it wasn't a decision I made overnight, but at the same time, we had a motivated seller and, and it made sense for me financially. And I knew I could make some improvements, you know, some delivery and, and, you know, do more marketing for the business. And, but the problems are same problems everybody has. It's keeping good staff and, you know, keeping the customers coming back, you know? Mm-hmm. What was the process of bringing on that partner who then ultimately changed that business a lot? Well, you know, we had talked about it for a while and, you know, Darren is just, again, you know, he runs 250 restaurants. So why did he get involved? It sounds like he already has a lot on his plate. He does have a lot on his plate and that's only the beginning of it. He's also just launched uh, cross two cruise river cruises. I don't know if you've heard of those Karsten, but it's the first yacht service on the Chow Pryor river. And he's got a beautiful boat. It's seats 14 and give him a little plug here, but it's really is the coolest experiencing the river. I've, I've done all the boats, right? the big ones, the, the big party boats, the long tail boats that go down the canals, you know, the rice barges. And this is the coolest of them all. You know, it's kind of a custom experience where you can go off anywhere. You, know, you can have champagne, you can have it catered. There's a complete moon roof on it. So at night you can look up, gaze up at the skyscrapers. And But anyway, cross two cruises, give it a try. <laughs> okay. So, but that is not the only business. No. Uh, yeah, that's true. That That is not. In January of this year, we launched the first ever tanning studio in the kingdom of Thailand. Did you think that selling fridges in... <laughs> <laughs> and Greenland was too easy or like, did you, did you, do you just want to have that on the resume? Like, you know, if you go ever go back to sales and they ask for your qualifications, you're like, I sold tanning in Bangkok. Carson, I will now in fact have my first Wikipedia entry. <laughs> so oh, yeah. I will have be noted as the man that brought tanning to Thailand. No, it's an interesting story in a way, I guess. So for those people that don't know in Thailand, People haven't been traditionally very big on tanning. It's not only that the sun is always shining, it's that usually the most commonly shown beauty ideal on television and elsewhere are people with very, very fair skin. So you have like whitening products. I mean, even armpit whitening products because your armpit shouldn't be too brown. (laughs) You couldn't be more correct. In fact, Thailand is the largest market for skin whitening products in Asia. Per capita or? Per capita. Uh Yeah. But the thing is, is I, you know, having worked in all over Asia, you know, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Singapore, Tokyo, Taipei, Taiwan, they all have tanning salons. And I always wonder, I'm like, why doesn't Bangkok have one? I mean, it's, you know, we're one of the largest, you know, cities and, you know, cosmopolitan cities in the world. 
I've been in the you know bar business for a long time and a lot of my friends are, and we're all kind of vampires, you know, we're out very late, sleep in, we don't get a lot of sun, <laughs> even though it's out there. The other thing is, is it's just not entirely that comfortable, you know, to be on the rooftop pool, you know, in the middle of the day, you know, catching some rays, it's kind of, you know, we've got the air could be better. You know, there's not a whole lot of breeze because we're surrounded by this concrete jungle and the ambient heat makes it even worse. So it's, you know, if you're going to a beach, great, enjoy. You've got the breeze coming off the water. You're under the palm trees. You know, it's a lovely experience, but you still got to use a lot of SPF, particularly me. <laughs> but so you do plan on convincing the ties to come and get a tan. Okay. Well, we started to BKK Sun. So that's the name of the business uh, in January, but we started the process three years ago. It took you three years to set this up. It took three years and there was a lot of starts and stops and a lot of, uh, maybe we just forget about this idea, but and part of it's by virtue of the fact that I'm, I'm a frown, you know, I'm an expat. The language barrier is pretty intense. Every document you get is in Thai, right? As well, it should be. This is Thailand, <laughs> all right? So you've got to have everything translated. You have to have everything explained to you. You need, you need lawyers. You need, you need people that know how to navigate the system. And right, because you have these machines here. Yeah, we were successful. And so you imported them. Correct. Everything is imported from the United States. They're manufactured there, but it's not just the machines. It's uh, even the suntan lotions that we have. How long does it take to get one of those machines from the U.S. to Bangkok? I mean, you were the very first person who did it, right? Yes. So you probably had some unique experiences. Yeah, there is. I mean, we have a great logistics company. I'm going to give another plug to a friend of mine, the managing director, uh, Kuntik, DSV. They're the best. They're international shipping agent. So, you know, I was able to deal with them directly. They dealt with the manufacturer directly. So it was the manufacturer completed my order. We filled up a 40 foot container full of equipment and it was picked up in actually Kansas City, Missouri and shipped to the West Coast via train, then by tractor trailer to the port of uh, Los Angeles. From Los Angeles, it was put on a giant container ship. And then four weeks later, hit the port of Bangkok. And you got it. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> you know, that's, you know how it goes. So were you mentally kind of prepared for surprises or were you still hit by, wait, what? The, that's a good question. <laughs> I had tried my best to be prepared for any possibility. So in some respects, I, there wasn't a bone in my body that thought it was just going to be, you know, a point A to point B drop them off at the store. Let's plug them in. <laughs> and that was, that ended up being pretty true, but nothing that we couldn't overcome, nothing that was unreasonable in any respect. Mm. You know, we worked with good people all the way through the process and we were just real fortunate. I mean, we got, uh, everything's here, everything's on. What were some unexpected obstacles you encountered in setting up the whole operation? The first, the biggest obstacle or the biggest challenge was finding the correct location. Mm -hmm. How did you go about that? What were the steps? Well, one of the things that we did that was a real plus is that about two years ago, prior to starting the business, we threw up a landing page on the internet that just said, Bangkok Sun Tanning Studio, coming soon, sign up for grand opening specials. It was a static page, didn't do anything. You had to Google it right? You had to say, I'm, you know, I'm looking for a tan 
in Bangkok, tanning salon in Thailand. How many people? Well, it was a shock to me, but over that course of time, we had several thousand people sign up. Several thousand people asked about tanning in yeah. Bangkok. And again, it was when we did our projections, we did our forecasts on, on what we thought were our customers. Initially, it was all expats. So we were looking at, okay, we have an expat population of say 250,000. Of that population, if we can get X percent, you know, we would have a, you know, a sustainable business model. Right. But what became evident early on was, you know, I would see 10 or 15 email signups a day. And you could see that a lot of them were Thai people, you know, Thai names. I was like, wow, that's, that's interesting. I said, that's it's really positive because we had only factored in a 5% factor for local ties to embrace tanning. Right. Because again, as you mentioned earlier, this is a, you know, the culturally, you know, a white colored or luminescent skin is, is much more appealing to the population at large. So we were, once we launched the service, well, I'll take a step back again. The most difficult part was finding the location. Right. So we did have a lot of expats sign up and what we knew is, and as probably all of us know, uh, there's no, no secret to it. You've got to be as close to a BTS location, BTS station, SkyTrain as you can. The closer you are, the better chance of survival you've got, uh, mm -hmm. regardless of whether it's a, a bar a restaurant, a dentist. You know. What about the subway? Or, or the subway, the MRT too, but the SkyTrain, you know, really is the, the lifeline to Sukhumvit mm -hmm. as, you know, runs straight down Sukhumvit to, you know, to the Seelom line. So we looked at both Seelom and Sukhumvit. We, we do have plans to open two more locations. One will be in Seelom and one in Siam, but we're looking for real estate now on those. But we just, I beat my brains out trying to find a location. I literally, <laughs> but I had a pedometer. And I would literally walk between 20 and 30 kilometers a day. So you would go to those SkyTrain stations and just walk around. I knew that we had to be between, at the furthest point on Newt, on the Sukhumvit lines, between on Newt and Chitlum. Okay. And, right. and again, that's the largest concentration of expats, where the second largest concentration is Siloam, where you've got all the embassies and that. How do you know where these expats are concentrated? Is that, do you have like stats? Is that your personal impression or? No, there's statistics. I had friends in the real estate business, but there's, it's. So it's, you hit up your friends in real estate business and say, I'm going to start a business. Tell me where the expats are. At. Exactly. That's exactly. Useful. Good contact. But it is also something that you can, you Google anything anymore, right? And uh, so you can find the hotbeds for expats in Bangkok and Tongla is one of them. But you didn't use your real estate friends to actually find the specific location. I asked everybody about if they could find a commercial space for me. And it's just really difficult. It's either really difficult or really expensive. And, you know, I'm, we were in a situation where we weren't necessarily bootstrapping, but we were fully funding the business ourselves. I should say myself, but what we did was, is again, we, I figured that the maximum we could be would be 200, maybe 250 meters from a BTS station. So walkable within 10 minutes, let's say, but you know, that 10 minute walk in April is a long walk and right. You don't want to 
people to get brown before they get there. Well, and just soaking wet. I mean, and I'm, I am really susceptible to the heat. I've just never really adapted myself. So at any rate, what I did was, is exactly that. I walked every soy, every sub soy at every station from on Newt to Chitlone and frankly, all along Selim line too. But why do you think was, I mean, this sounds like a problem that real estate agents are there to solve. Yeah, but to be honest with you, when you do talk to real estate agents and there's loads of websites, you know, they all have a website. Right. It's more of the big box houses that they're representing. You know, the Sion Paragons, the Jasmines, the, the more established mall type locations. So everything but the shop house. Well, there, if, and again, if it's not that, excuse me, it's office space, loads of it. I've got some such, you know, great friends with Frank Knight, with CBRE. They know every office space in the city, you know. So when you want something a little more unique, you know, my heart was set on a shop house and we found it just, you know, we're on Sukhumvit Soy 34. We're 60 meters from the Tonglaw BTS exit two. It's a beautiful footpath from the exit two past, you know, the crest, the noble, you know, some well lit, there's no vendors. You'd make a quick left-hand turn on the soy 34 and we're, we're 10 meters down on the right-hand side. We've got a, the big sign, black and white sign, Bangkok sun. How did this place look before you moved in? Like, I remember, I remember looking for office space and I, sometimes I walked into a space and it was pre-renovation <laughs> and I look at these places and I'm like, this looks like a dump. Like how, <laughs> how are we going to turn this into an office and how much is that going to cost? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we were really lucky. This building is actually 60 years old. And if you go on Google maps now, you could see photos of what this building looked like before they rehabbed it. The owner is spectacular. Kunaprat. She's an extraordinary lady, a great landlord, owns properties all over the city. She's actually an entrepreneur herself. She started a plumbing supply company mm -hmm. about 60 years ago. Wow. And she's just up the street. She's on Soy 59. Uh -huh. We see her every month. We hand deliver our rent, you know, on the 25th of the month. And uh, she loves that. And we, we love to see her. She's got her grandkids and everything are all running around her office and uh, they all know us now. But at any rate, is that a strategy or is that, I mean, you could, Is that something you've chosen to like hand over the envelope to build that relationship? That is exactly right. No one does that. Everything's done by bank transfer. Right. And we could certainly do that too. It would be much easier. But, you know, as I said earlier in the game, I've always believed that relationships are paramount to success. And when you've got this much money, you know, wrapped up in an enterprise and in a building, the last thing you want is a contentious relationship with the landlord. So, is there anything specific you think you will get from this or is that just good practice or is that just the way you do things or? It is good practice and it is the way I do things. I do that even with, you know, if I'm running a villa or if I'm running a, a condo, I always pay on the 25th of the month. I've been a landlord myself and chasing someone for rent is really unpleasant. And frankly, it happens often enough that when someone is paying you in cash on the 25th of the month, getting his receipt, walking out the door, you know, maybe having a cupcake with you or a cup of coffee that stands out and it makes a difference. In fact, it really, you know, this is a long-term commitment. So 
I signed a three-year lease, but Kunaprat was kind enough during our negotiations to give me an option on three more with a small percentage increase. If you've been in this, the real estate business long enough, some of the, my best friends in some of the best bars and pubs in this city have been put out of business by landlords that on the renewal increased the rent 300% because they can. So I've got a contract now that at my option year, I have the option to renew again for three more years at a few percentage points. So it'll make very little difference on what I'm paying now versus what I'll be paying five years from now. What is that situation like since you talk about landlords forcing out tenants? Do your friends or you, do you get trademarks for that business? Do you think that'll protect you in the future? And if someone wants to take over the business that you say, oh, wait, 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 you can't call it that, or this is not the same, or how do you think about this issue? Well, it's capitalism. I mean, you know, you own the building. I honestly, it's, I've seen it more times than I care to talk about. I mean, it's not Thailand, it's everywhere. You know, it's New York City, it's San Francisco, it's, you know, it's Paris, it's London. You know, if, if you've got a hot location and, you know, your livelihood is leasing property and you feel you've undervalued the property, you know, there's no allegiance there. There's nothing saying, oh, Jeff's such a good guy, I'm going to give him another, you know, I'll just keep it the same, even though I can get another 300,000 baht a month for the same space from the guy that's already wanting it. You know, so okay. yeah, it's cutthroat, man. And then even on my building, our building, we're East in the restaurant. We signed another three-year lease with another three-year option. And again, because we pay on the 25th of the month, have for years, this guy, Kuntam, he is the nice, I've got big family. They're super loaded. They have properties everywhere. Do you also get to meet them in person? Always. Always. He, they fix, actually physically live very close to our, our businesses and they come in for coffee every day. Oh, that's but nice. They see how we take care of their property. They know that we're a good tenant. You know, it, it's a business relationship that's vital, you know, that you keep on track. So, yeah. So, I mean, we have the same arrangement. After three years, we have a three-year option, but we've negotiated the amount of increase in rent so that we know we're not going to be outpriced in the market. Did you get a lawyer to... Um draft that or check that or yes you, you do i mean uh, again all the agreements are in tie mm. do you want to block them as well well you know what that is great i gotta tell you i have got myself and again it's a referral from my friend darren but probably one of the top lawyers in the city his name is uh well his law firm is brs ira is just the nicest guy in the world he's expat american been here Gosh, I don't know. I think he's been here 25 years. And that's Ira Blumenthal, right? Yeah. How did, and they were referred to you by your friend? Yeah, they were referred to us by Darren. Before that, I had a, an, another good attorney, a Thai attorney, but it was for these particular deals I've been working with, I've had enough capital tied up in them that I needed, I really did need to speak to a Westerner that had vast experience in business. He's, he's owned Mercedes dealerships and, you know, he's owned his own restaurants, his own clubs. So there's not much he hasn't seen and could give me a firsthand perspective. So I was delighted. Now, dealing with Ira is, is great. In fact, he's having a party at our restaurant on Thursday night. Nice. <laughs> yeah, he's bringing his old team. 
Cool. So about once you had the lease signed for this place, or at some point you had to renovate the building, right? That's correct. How did you go about that? We had an excellent designer, a friend. Uh, her name is Kung Nong. She's done some of the neatest restaurants in the city, Quince, Smith. I can't even think of all of them that she's done. Oh, she's done a lot of work for Cross 2. How did you know about her? Just friends and friends. You know, we go to parties and, you know, I've got a pretty wide network of, of friends and she was doing work for another friend of mine, redoing a, a penthouse apartment. And we got to talk and I said, man, I, I'm getting ready to sign a deal on, on a new property and I need somebody that knows what they're doing and has the construction contacts, which is very important too. She's, she wasn't just the interior designer. She was also the uh, general contractor. Hmm. I think that makes sense because what I hear from a lot of interior designers is that they are really worried about getting cheated on contracts where mm -hmm. they do a proposal and the owner says, ah, no, we're not going to go for it. And then basically gets his own guy to do the same thing. Yeah. And in this particular case, we did use some real blue chip firms. So the prices were a little bit dear, to be honest with you. Now, this is one of the areas that in Thailand is you can usually count on. Labor is something that's economical when running businesses. So when you think about all the work we had done here, I would say that we We got our money's worth, but we paid a premium. Right. Right. But she did a beautiful job. Uh, she came in, you know, we've, the machines, the solarium, the machines that we have stand up booths, we have lay down beds, all of which are glistening white. They're space age. So we wanted something that was very modern, but also kind of fun to come to. It's a four story building. We've got uh, spray tanning on the, our second floor. How does that work? Spray tan? I oh, mean, spray is, is basically someone with a can and they just... No, it's very interesting. Spray you brown or... <laughs> spray tanning is really becoming a really popular option for tanners now. Just to get cite some statistics for you, in the United States, a million people a day uh, go to a tanning booth. Okay, so a traditional solarium mm -hmm. with the lamps and get a more natural sunlight type experience. But... You know, the industry is so mature. It's over 30 years old, you know, which was the whole rage was started by Coco Chanel uh -huh. back, I don't know what, in the 1960s you know, or something like that, 50s. And she made it in vogue to be tan, to look sporty. It was kind of the jet setter's way of saying, I didn't have to go to the office today. <laughs> you know? Right. I just lounge by the pool and play polo. And, you know, it's, it was kind of a jet setter thing that caught on. And, you know, it's, if you ask uh, a lot of people that are tan or like to tan, it tends to make you look slimmer. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But how does it work? Like literally, I mean, when I think spray tan, I think someone is like a bit like a guy with a graffiti can who's no. like, there's no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's come a long way. It's uh, spray tan solutions are organic. The ingredient that actually tans your skin is DHA, which is a sugar cane based. It interacts with your skin just like the sun. So when you go into the sun at the beach, you're laying at the beach, you've got suntan lotion on, your skin's moist and moisturized, and it accepts 50% more of the sun, okay? So when it, the sun interacts with your skin, it interacts with the melanonin in your skin, and that's what turns your skin tan or brown, okay? Spray tanning does the exact same thing. 
So is it sugar? Is it like, do you get like sticky fingers or? Well, actually the compound itself dries almost immediately. Uh -huh. But if you were to have a spray tan and, and immediately touch your skin before it dries, you would say, yeah, it's a little bit sticky, okay. but it interacts with your skin identical to the sunshine. All right. So it's not a cosmetic. It not, doesn't paint your skin tan. Okay. It's clear or? The actual DHA is a clear component, is a clear ingredient. But particularly here in Thailand, people want to see an immediate effect. Okay. So this spray tan, we use California Tan, which is uh, one of the largest suppliers of spray tans. They have Australia Gold. They have designer skin. Well, all of the suntan lotions we carry are all from this company called California Tan out of the United States. And, but at any rate, this has a tint to it so that when you're spray tanning an individual, you can actually see if you've missed a spot. So it's actually right. kind of a good idea. In the United States, it's been around so long that they don't even have the tint in it any longer. Okay. All right. Because you can see also where your skin's wet and where it's dry. Right. So you don't need it because the ingredient, again, it creates, it interacts. So the next day, so you'll let it stay on your skin for two hours. Then you take a light shower. So you don't scrub, you just take a light shower and you can see the coloring, the tan coloring come off your skin and run down the shower drain. But you'll still have, because it's been on your skin for two hours, you'll still have a tan, but it actually develops into a darker shade of tan over the next two or three days. And then it levels off and then it'll last roughly, you know, seven days, sometimes eight, nine days, but it'll also fade evenly over your entire body, just like a regular suntan does. Mm. So it's kind of neat in a way. There's a lot of folks, you know, when they come to our studio, the first thing they do is we ask them to fill out a, a registration form and we ask them whether or not they, they're interested in spray tanning or traditional solarium tanning. And if they fill in their, these questions relative to their skin type, and then we can look at that and then determine how long they can stay in the sunbed. And the rule of thumb is everything in moderation. You know, the beauty of using an indoor tanning versus outdoor tanning is if you've ever been to the beach in Thailand, you know, our sun is very intense where we're located. We are very close to the equator. So the intensity of the sun we get here, as opposed to the sun we get in California, is immensely more intense. So it's hard to judge, you know, how long should you stay in the sun without getting sunburned? Where here, we do skin typing. You use our indoor lotions, which are specifically designed for indoor tanning. And then we give you a regimen of tans. So like Carson, for you, I would say, you know, with your skin type, I would say that you would want to do three minutes maximum in one of our stand-up sun booths. And you would probably do that three times in a row. And then at that point, we would see how your skin's reacting. Is that the level of tan you want? And we may be able to in increase it to four minutes, mm -hmm. but it's very moderate. It's actually a term that's coined for it and it's called smart tanning. Hmm. Is there a place where people who are listening to this right now can find out more about what you're offering? Uh, sure. We've got a great Facebook page where everybody start hitting like because uh, we're about uh, 12 people away from 5,000 likes on Facebook okay. right now. We've got a Facebook page, BKK Sun. Uh -huh. 
And we've got a website, bkksun.com. And a friend of mine, you'll see on there, Kun Yui. She's a, a supermodel here in Thailand. And another friend of ours, AJ, are the models uh, that the photography was all shot in our studio. And you'll get a couple of glimpses of our third floor gallery, as we call it. And that's where our, our big stand-up booths are. And and some of the shots of spray tanning and whatnot to give you an idea. And if you flip to the frequently asked uh, questions section, you'll get loads of tips on indoor tanning, spray tanning, and, and really tanning in general and how to take care of your skin. Okay. Last question. What do you think about the blackface scandal that apparently pops up once a year in Thailand? Yeah. So for those that don't know, like about once a year, there is a scandal of some company in Thailand using some form of blackface of like an actress with a black painted face to advertise either a whitening product or something completely unrelated. It just happens to be brown. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's kind of interesting because, you know, the message, if you saw, you know, you saw the ad, the message was essentially that if you're white skinned, you will be very successful. Okay. That was the crux of that particular ad. If you're not, then you won't be as successful. All right. And I think that when we look back on this particular business and the fact that we're promoting the beauty the whole world loves the beauty of Thai tan skin. I mean, Amy, my girlfriend's got the most beautiful skin, dark tan skin, you know, the girls that work here. But in general, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you know, the culturally having white skin meant you were an office worker. You lived in Bangkok. Perhaps you were a little more affluent. If you had dark skin, you were characterized as someone that was, you know, working on farms or working in manual labor. And that was an indicator of your cultural status. And it's kind of a shame because as we all know, the beauty is everywhere. And you know where I have to give a lot of credit and that's to the Thai celebrities. We're really fortunate. I mean, again, we're Eason. Our restaurant is just next door to channel three. So the, all the LeCorn actors, the presenters on television, the newscasters were kind of the local hangout, you know, for them. And so, of course, they've known about this, you know, Bangkok Sun tanning studio concept for a while. And a lot of them have been educated overseas. They have a lot of foreign expat friends, Farang friends that all love to tan. And so we've had, we've been fortunate enough to have uh, like just yesterday, Uh, Miss Universe Thailand was here and she's on our Facebook page. She's got some 5 million, you know, Instagram and Facebook followers, but she really set the tone. Literally. L literally set the tone. That's pretty funny. But I mean, quite beautifully. I mean, you know, she is dark skinned beauty. I mean, beauty. And it gives the younger generation, you know, it lets them all know that it's wonderful to be dark skinned. It's wonderful. You know, the most beautiful woman in the world has Titan skin and has beautiful skin. So, you know, we've been lucky. We've had fashion designers and models and actors and actresses that have come here. They've been in many cases good enough to check in and let their fans know that they're here. And I think they're the ones that get the credit or should get the credit for kind of starting this tan of trending tan, if you will. But, but the message is great. 
the message is great. And that is that if you have tan skin, you are absolutely beautiful. Thank you very much, Jeff. It's been a pleasure doing this interview with you. Great, Carson. Thank you very much for having me on. I couldn't even tell you how much I miss my dad. We talk on the phone at least once, if not twice a week for an hour at a time. It's usually during a Cardinals baseball game and we're both watching it. You know, I'm watching it at seven in the morning. He's watching it at seven at night in uh, St. Louis. But uh, if there's one thing I miss, it's definitely you miss the chance of seeing your family and friends. And that's it from Brood in Bangkok for this episode. If you like the show, please go to iTunes and leave it a five-star rating. If you would like to find out more about the show, you can go to broodinbangkok.com and the website will redirect you to more information about the podcast, show notes, and more background information about our guests and anything else you want to know about the show or me. Until next time. Until next time.